0: The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love, with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York.
1: Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, but we look at it through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. Um, I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Tom Dobbins is here with us. Uh, he kind of takes responsibility for making sure we have interesting guests with whom we can speak. And so I'm delighted that Tom is kind of with us today, and today we're going to have um, a variety of different uh, different guests that are, that are here, and so um, I'm really pleased that we're going to be having this, this conversation. Tom, how has the end of your summer gone?
0: It, it, you know, Monsieur, it's been actually uh, very good. Um, you know, it, it, the, the summer finished out well. I uh, I got down to the park for a couple of days. The weather was actually very nice. Uh, I really was enjoying, uh, you know, being down by the river and doing some reading. And so I I had a pretty good end of the summer. I can't really complain. But I hope the good weather continues. Just because summer's over, Monsieur, I don't want I don't want I don't want winter to come soon. I want a nice, robust autumn. <laughs>
1: Okay, so, um, but how, um,
0: what, uh, which which river? I go over, actually, you know, just because it's a good walk from my house, I walk over to the Hudson River. So, like, I always, I like the park down by Hudson Yards, and uh, if you wind up walking over by there, uh, they have really very nice greenways along the side, so, you know, they have beautiful uh, benches where you can kind of sit and you can look out at the sunset, because uh, usually by the time I get there, by the time I walk across the city, it's you know, it's late afternoon, so I don't get the sunrise. I get the sunset, um, but it's really, really beautiful. Miss here, if you if you ever get a chance, you should go down. Like the really nice parks between like thirtieth Street and twenty third Street. They're, they're really, really beautiful.
1: Well, I know that because I think if you remember um, the um, that <clears throat> we had uh, a couple of years ago. I think I spoke about this when. Um, i it was actually before the pandemic where i actually
0: walked around manhattan island i do remember that much yeah i do i was uh, that's a that's an impressive walk (laughs) yeah so so in
1: fact um the um you know the area that you're talking about i know very uh very well and i um really um, enjoyed the walk that was around there. And, you know, interestingly, one of the things that that is very interesting about that part of the world is that that area is, I, I don't want to say a little bit, well, let me say it this way. It's a little bit man-made. It's not natural. They kind of, like, created that and, um, you know, a little bit... Um, A little bit different than some of the parts in the northern part of Manhattan, which, you know, are much more natural. Now, they have built a few walkways there, but they haven't done kind of the extensive stuff that that they've done in the area that you're talking about. So I kind of like both of them. But I think it's, um, it's, it's good that, um, you know, there's a variety of stuff if you walk all the way around, uh, Manhattan, you know, about, uh, around Manhattan Island. So it, it is a little bit of a, of a kind of an interesting walkway around, uh, around Manhattan. So anyway, so that's good. So why don't we, um, <clears throat> why don't we go to our, our first guest? Our first guest is Nyla Hadi who is now a consultant but for many years she worked at the united nations association of the united states of america so i'll be interested to learn a little bit more about that Um she herself was born in afghanistan and some of the work we're going to talk about is what she's been doing with um afghan uh, afghan women who uh... left uh, Afghanistan and have been are now in the United States so let me say a word of, of welcome to uh, <clears throat> excuse me Naila Hadi thank you for joining us on Just Love.
2: Thank you so much Monsignor um, I've loved being here with you and uh, listening to your conversation and uh, getting this opportunity to talk about this important issue.
1: Okay, so the first thing I want to make sure is that I said your name correctly.
2: Yes, Nyla Hadi.
1: Okay, I think yeah, that's if I think of the Nile River, and and that that's a that's a good way to think about. So Nyla, tell our give our um, listeners a little bit of sense of you, your background. um, How did you get to where you are now?
2: Um, sure. So the quick story is, um, you know, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, when I was seven, my father joined the United Nations. So we left Afghanistan and moved to Thailand and Kenya, um, which is actually where I did most of my formative growing up. Um, my family who were in Afghanistan had to leave the country as refugees, Uh post the communist coup of 1978, and so now we have a diaspora around the world, as many Afghans do uh, today. So sadly, the um, country has been seeing, you know, its state of turmoil and war uh, for over 44 years now. Um, you know, growing up uh, as a child of a UN employee, of course, I became very quickly aware of Uh, the world that we live in outside of you know the borders of of, uh, my home country and my work sort of continued with that as my studies my interests were all around international issues and affairs and about how do we all work together to make the world a better place it's very ideal sort of view of of the world but that's how I operated and still do (laughs) Mm-hmm. So um yeah, so then I ended up uh you know working at the United Nations Association for over 10 years.
1: Ah, and where were you were you working at another organization prior to that?
2: Yes, yes. I've I've worked, but I've been in the nonprofit cause-related world um all of my working life. Um so I've worked around uh, a number of different issues, you know, including immigration. Um access to healthcare, uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, but the, the most sort of recent full-time uh, position that I had was at the United Nations Association, where I initially led uh, the Adopt a Minefield campaign, which was to raise funds for clearing landmines around the world. Um, And then beyond that, I moved to becoming vice president of um, humanitarian campaigns and developed a campaign for supporting HIV, AIDS orphans in Africa, and then became the chief operating officer of the organization um, as a whole. And when Mm -hmm. I was working, um, you know, my work with landmine clearance, uh, Afghanistan was one of the countries that we supported and raised quite uh, an extensive amount of um, money to help clear landmines working with the United Nations and returning land back to people who you know, couldn't otherwise use their their land. So that's interesting. Um, and, and I I this
1: interests me. I hope it interests some of our listeners. Um, I guess I just haven't thought about it um, where the landmines come from in Af- uh, in Afghanistan.
2: Um, at the time, that was from the Soviet invasion, right? So there were okay. landmines thrown all throughout the country. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, people learned how to make them. And so as the wars continued beyond the Soviets' occupation, uh, landmines continued, and, and, of course, the unexploded ordnance that then become landmines when they don't explode upon landing, um, and then they become, you know, victim-triggered, but Yeah, it's it's a it's a horrible uh, weapon of war, as all are. But this is particularly terrible because it impacts people long after wars are over. And
1: uh, am I again? I know because it's so much in the news uh, these days with the, um, you know, England and the the death of of Queen Elizabeth. um, But wasn't there a member of the royal family who was Get, raised a little bit of raise the issue of landmines as as one of the the uh, causes that they were very concerned about.
2: Ah, uh, yes, that was Princess Diana. She had that ah. famous scene where she walked through um, a minefield. Um, she yeah. she uh, actually was, uh, you know, very important in sort of bringing this issue to the forefront to beyond sort of the people who were interested in these issues on their own or international issues. But she brought it home through people's you know, televisions and those were powerful. Yeah. Scenes.
1: yeah. So globally, how are we doing in terms of kind of destroying, getting rid of uh, landmines that may be left over from wars in various places?
2: I mean, I I think that, uh, you know, we're making great progress towards that, and particularly, again, the work of the United Nations around that. And actually, the U.S. uh, State Department provides a lot of important funding for uh, this work around the world. But, you know, at the same time with, you know, people are learning how to use and how to create um, their own homemade devices. So... They're not going down as quickly as we're, you know, uh, clearing them, but but they are still um, an unfortunate option available for um, times of, of war and disrupt.
1: So I think what you just said, something that I think is you know, kind of a little bit sad, very sad, tragic, that Afghanistan has been in a state of war for for many many decades, uh, beginning with the Russian invasion, um, but you know what I don't think you know many of our listeners would have a sense of, and I certainly don't have a sense of this is what was Afghanistan like before the the invasions.
2: Well, the Afghanistan that I remember, you know, from my yeah. childhood, um, was a, a lovely country. Um, you know, definitely, you know, back then the terminology was, you know, it was a third world country. Um, so it was not uh, developed the way, you know, Europe and United States and all that, was, yeah. of course, but it was a country of, of peace. Um, it had its share of problems, but um, it, it was not what, what we see today um, at all. And um, so it's very heartbreaking that, you know, what has been going on and now I guess we'll have two generations of, of people, of Afghans who, um, you know, have been living in, in, in times of war. But, uh, you know, so mon- many people in the world now today, when they think of, of Afghanistan, all they think are, are poverty stricken, poor uh, people, desperate people, um, which is, is you know, unfortunate because these people all come with a rich culture and a rich history and, You know, sometimes I think we tend to forget that, you know, refugees, um, people who are desperate at our borders are people just like us, right? Um, And circumstances of life have brought them to where they are today and not by choice, by any means. And, um, you know, the work that I've been doing with uh, helping Afghan refugees acclimate to life in the United States, one thing that I discovered was how so many of them had actually been refugees prior um, because of the Soviet invasion and then had moved back to the country uh, post um, 2001. And so in 2002, a lot of people started going back with great hopes for their country Uh, So many of them, you know, had um, jobs and reunited with their families and were working towards rebuilding their country to then only find themselves once again becoming refugees, um, you know, desperate for asylum and, you know, in fear of their lives, for their lives and for their children and extended families, right? Because Afghan culture is very much one of, you know, when you say family, you don't mean my my parents, and, you know, my kids, but it is uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody, everybody is is one important unit. Uh, so it just breaks my heart that, you know, I have been very fortunate and privileged to be where I am. And, you know, I try to, to do the best that I can in terms of helping, um, like I said, people acclimate to life in the United States. But, you know, you, I, I just wonder, like, at which point do we as a human species stop with this nonsense of how we treat one another, the wars that go on, and all of that? You know.
1: We're speaking with um, with Naya uh, Hadi, and we're speaking with her about um, the plight of, of refugees in the world, with a particular kind of focus on the situation in Afghanistan. Um, Naya, so. Uh, Give our listeners a little bit of sense. I mean, it's it's about a year, almost exactly since the media was filled with pictures of kind of withdrawal of American troops, uh, pictures of the Kabul airport, and all of those things. Give our listeners a little bit of a sense of so how many uh, Afghan came out, of there, and how many are now living in the United States?
2: Oh my goodness, I am afraid I don't have sort of exact numbers for that. Um, but it's just you know, a, uh, a
1: ballpark. I mean, it's it's certainly more than hundreds, and it's not ten million, right? It's it's kind of no <laughs> some right, right, yeah. right.
2: It's. I mean, it is. It is um, in the thousands, and right. I don't know between right. coming out of the United States, going to Pakistan, going to Iran, ending up in different you know parts of Europe. I mean, it's several hundred thousand for sure.
1: Right, All right. So again, now tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing uh, with some of those um, who have who have left Afghanistan on and are resettling in the United States.
2: Well, the main work that I've been doing um, is just uh, providing translation, right? So, um, including with with um, your wonderful team at Catholic Charities, um, you know, uh, it, it was uh, it was all so sudden for everybody, obviously, and so there uh, was a dearth of of. Barsi or diary speaking, uh, translators. And so it's not anything that I've done professionally, but <laughs> by any means, but I immediately yeah. thought, well, beyond, you know, writing checks and all of that, that we, we do when these situations arise, like here's something that I can actually help with, uh, directly. And I have the time, uh, you know, to, to do it right now. Yeah. So once, you know, you start, uh, with that through word of mouth, um, you know, because there were so many people, and particularly, I guess, in my circle of friends or people who are like-minded, who want to engage in helping, you know, people in different situations. So um, for a while, I was getting a lot of calls uh, for helping to, to translate. And what was interesting for me is that, you know, I was a child when we left Afghanistan. So I actually don't read and write in my mother tongue. I'm illiterate, but I do speak the language. But then I, you know, I grew up speaking it at home with my parents, but I don't speak the formal Farsi. Um, so as a result of all of this, my Farsi has actually become much stronger, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah. so basically, you know, aside from just the translating, I also, you know, um, one talk to to people, particularly women Afghan women, just just to you know, be, be somebody that they can be themselves with and not have to worry about um, being understood, Um, not just in language, but in terms of of where they come from, the culture, um, you know, points of reference, all of that. And then I also help, um, you know, people try um, as they navigate their way to life in the United States, um, those who speak English and those who came um, with you know, education and all of that, obviously have an easier time, again, it's relative uh, to those who have come, who, for example, worked, um, you know, as security at the US US embassy, or working with NGOs um, at that level, but who, you know, don't have a full on uh, grasp of English, and and their family members um, often don't have any. So again, working with them to Help sort of alleviate some of the fear and nervousness, and to you know encourage them in terms of stepping outside of their homes um, and engaging with the community um, outside. It's it's you know it's it's tough for some people, obviously.
1: So you know uh, now one of the things you mentioned, which I think um, sometimes maybe those who haven't. Done, aren't terribly familiar with kind of refugees and, and, and people fleeing from uh, tragic situations is kind of the diversity of those who leave. And I'll just, uh, give a little bit of, of kind of something that I experienced my, myself is when I visited some of the refugee camps in Kurdistan, probably about five or six years ago, um, in that group were A a large number of professionals, doctors and teachers, who had left because they were fleeing ISIS and the uh, the Taliban, uh, not the Taliban, the ISIS and the um, uh, the overnight taking over of the area around Mosul, and so you had people who were very very. You know, well educated, who had been well positioned, and now they were kind of refugees. Give us a sense, and I know you did just a little bit of it, but give us a little bit of sense of kind of the makeup of the Afghani evacuees, refugees who have kind of now settling in the United States.
2: Well, I think it's exactly that, what you said, right? So it's the full spectrum of those who um, were professionals and had, you know, sort of high paying, high profile positions, whether it was uh, with the government leading, um, you know, non-governmental organization, members of parliament, teachers, Um, you know, I I volunteered with the um, Georgetown Institute for Women and Peace and Security. They had a group of 30 something Afghan women, professional women that they, along with partners, helped evacuate and resettle in the United States. I mean, this is not a part of the regular work that the institution does, but these women's lives were in immediate danger and they brought them out. Um, And this is an incredible group of, of, you know, educated, inspiring, smart uh, women, um, you know, many of whom speak English. So for them, you know, the work that, uh, the conversations with me was more around uh, sort of helping them sort of acclimate to, to life in the United States rather than translating, um, because, you know, it is a very different world. Even you could be, you know, absolutely 100%, you know, English speaking, but if you've never been in this country, it's going to be very different than, you know, what life was like in Afghanistan. Um, but then there are also the people, like I mentioned, who had different types of work, Um that are here because they were, uh, you know, working at the U.S. Embassy or, or working with uh, international NGOs, whether they were drivers or, you know, people working in, in the gardens or in the warehouses, things like that. So, you know, they are not necessarily, um, you know, educated, highly educated people, but they were making, you know, their lives and working and supporting their families uh, through these efforts, and as a result, their lives, um, you know, were in danger because of the fact that they had worked with this the foreigners, if you will. Um, so there is that that full spectrum, and um, so depending on the need of the individuals, um, you know, I, I try to do uh, what I can that best need, meets their needs, and I also, you know, there are lots of of groups. Here, uh, here, by here, I mean in, in, uh, in New Jersey where I live, um, you know, lots of, uh, quite a number rather, of um, groups that work with refugee resettlement. And many of them were caught off guards as well because of the sudden influx. So, you know, people are working around the clock. Um, initially it was, you know, raising funds and, uh, you know, bringing together um, household goods and all of that, getting apartments. And helping resettle people, and most of these people are doing this work on a pure volunteer basis. Um, so I, you know, work with a number of those and, and help uh, again translate or, you know, take people to, to appointments or you know those types of things. So, what, Nyla? N- N- how how big or large a uh,
1: Afghan uh, community a population was in the United States? oh, you know, let's say five years ago before um, any of this happened?
2: Oh, I don't again, don't know the exact numbers. I'm sorry to say, but um, but there were quite a few. Right. So, again, we're talking about over 40 years of war. That means we've had different, you know, waves of Afghans, uh, refugees coming into the United States, sort of members of my family who came, the extended family. Uh, they came, you know, in 78 and 79. Um, so there have been waves over the years uh, of different groups coming in. So there's quite, um, you know, a, a diaspora of Afghans within the United States, within the, uh, particularly in the um, Washington, D.C. area, in California, there's, you know, Texas, there's different pockets around, around the country. And this round seeing... Um, you know what we all saw those tragic, um, you know, images from the airport and the people, desperate people, and people throwing mm. their children and saying, "Take them." There was, you know, quite a a group of Afghans who themselves, you know, who like me live here. Many of them who actually were born here, who are now engaged in helping refugees uh, resettle as well. So that was really heartening um, to see. So there are enough of us now to make an impact um, on helping those who are coming in uh, fresh.
1: Now, you have been so generous with your time, and thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. Before I let you go, two things. The first thing is, um, is there one kind of misconception or or some important point that our listeners should know about Afghans in the United States that, that you'd like to, Emphasize, make sure the people knew.
2: Um, I think it's important for people to remember that just because we're not seeing the images and seeing sort of um, the stories and the news and all of that, that the problem has not gone away, right? So we have refugees here in this country, and it takes time for people to settle, and you know, it's it's hard for any cause to sustain sort of that uh, donor engagement, but that's, that's a challenge, you know, so understanding that. And then as new groups of refugees are coming in, you know, from the Ukraine, from Venezuela, these are all people uh, in need of help and support. And, right. you know, whatever passion that people had in terms of helping when, you know, we see these images, we hear these bits of news to to try and please hang on to that and continue to support the important work of these organizations um, that are helping these incoming folks and, and volunteering people, you know, time and stuff is is um, just as important as financially as well.
1: So I know we've been talking about a, you know, it, which is a very, very serious and very important issue. But let me end on one note, is which might be a little bit lighter. So I'm willing to bet that most of our listeners may not be all that familiar with Afghan food. So if there were one Afghan food that you think we should try that we might not be familiar with, what would be your recommendation?
2: Um, Palau. Okay. A, a rice dish, Kabulī um, Palau. You know, it's, it has some carrots and raisins and some people put in nuts, but it's a meat with the rice and it is absolutely delicious in fact it's my daughter just left for college and i asked what would you like for dinner before you leave what you know making her her favorite meals and palau was right at the top of that list spell it for our listeners i spell it p-a-l-a-u okay Um, yeah
1: all right um so Okay, listeners, you just got a culinary tip, and so uh, I am just very, very kind of grateful that uh, Naila Hadi has joined us, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in trying to kind of make life better for so many different people, and particularly uh, those who are trying to make kind of a new life here in the United States from Afghanistan. Naila, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for your important work.
1: Great, thank you. Okay, Tom, I think we will take a break, and uh, we'll be back. We just say just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
0: Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor.
1: Back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the Church in the world. We look at the things that are going on in our world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We look at it through the perspective of the dignity of the human person, the dignity of work, which is what we're going to be kind of speaking about in a uh, in a few minutes with our next uh, guest. Um, by, by Ravi Thesai, um, delighted that she is going to be our guest. But, and it's appropriate that we do this on, um, you know, as we get on the Labor Day weekend, very kind of important day in the United States. Um, the, you know, when we look at what's going on in the world, yes, the dignity of work is one thing, solidarity across the globe, which we just spoke about with our previous guest, and particular focus on what's going on with Afghans who have come to the United States after being kind of driven out of of Afghanistan. Um, And we cook at issues of the ecology, which are critically important. And kind of there's a little bit of a kind of a um, a confluence, of the issues of ecology, with the issues of work, which kind of deals with uh, the topic that we're going to be speaking on on next. So let me bring in our next guest. I'm delighted that she is, is joining us um, uh, by Ravi Fisai. Uh Thank you for joining us on Just Love.
3: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here.
1: No, it's it's our honor to have you, but I want to get one thing straight. Would you say your name? Because I want to make sure that <laughs> we don't mess it up too bad.
3: <laughs> no, you did great. Um, I pronounce it Beta V. Okay. Yeah, but you did great. I, there are so many Indian languages. So we're hitting one of them, both, both of us. <laughs>
1: okay. So say, say it again. Beta V. Okay. Beta V. Beta V. Okay. Okay. Well, that, actually... That's easy to remember because it's the beta, it's the beta testing. Yes. (laughs) And re is easy. So I don't have to think of something for that. (laughs) That is that is now how about your last thing? Desai. Okay. Uh, now tell me, is is I hope this is not bad. Okay. But is Desai also used for certain ethnic groups?
3: Um. No. Well, so I'm from India. My my family is Hindu. Okay. So Desai is a common surname for people from the Hindus from the state of Gujarat. Okay. Um. Yeah. So. (laughs)
1: Okay. I. I. Because sometimes you know there are nicknames for people from different countries, and I'm a little careful because I don't want to make. I want to make sure it's it's not kind of a derogatory term. But I thought. There was something like that that people used, but but that's great. So, uh, thank you, Beteray, for being um, on on Just Love. Um, give our give our listeners just a little bit of your own background before we get into a topic which which I am really interested about because I have to confess, I don't understand it. I mean, I understand the concept. But I don't understand how it's going to work. But um, so tell us a little bit about your background. And so our listeners get to know you a little bit.
3: Sure. So um, I was born in India and I came to the States when I was six. I came with my whole family. I actually used to live in North Carolina, but um, I grew up in New Jersey. And I've been organizing Taxi drivers since 1996. Um, and a group of us founded the Taxi Workers Alliance in 1998, and we're now at over 25,000 members. But you know, I I you know I grew up poor. Um, you know, my, my parents, uh, we were one of like the first Indian families in the small, it's a small factory town that I grew up in, in New Jersey called Harrison. And we had a population of like 10,000 and everybody either had two jobs or no jobs. Right. You know? Um, <laughs> and so my mom was a factory worker. My father who had been a lawyer in India, uh, took everything that they had after a few years of looking for work and bought a one-aisle bodega, <laughs> um, which is where I grew up. And so I um, know eventually he worked at warehouses and, and other jobs. But, you know, I, I love my class and I wanted to serve it. And so I'm really proud to be part of a workers' rights movement.
1: Well, um, <clears throat> battery, I'm I'm delighted that you are.
2: Because uh,
1: it's so, so uh, important. Now, you know, again, you probably know this better than I, because we do have listeners from throughout the country. Um, There are taxi, there's taxi industries in most of the major cities, aren't they? Yes. And, but I would assume given the fact that New York is the largest city, our kind of fleet of taxis and the variety of taxis, probably is a little bit larger than some of the other places?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's the second biggest taxi market in North America. I think Mexico City has a um, little few more than than we do. But also, if the New, the New York City taxi and for higher vehicle industry broadly, right, which would include yellow cabs, green cabs, liveries, and of course, Uber and Lyft and corporate black cars, we would be, you know, we, our private industry is bigger than most public and private transportation networks combined across the country. I think we're like in the top three with the number of vehicles. And then mm-hmm. we have, which are now like about 100,000, and the number of passengers that drivers collectively serve, which is over 1 million every single day.
1: 1 million, are there, is that again... Pardon me. I'm going to be a little technical for a moment. Mm-hmm. Is it 1 million different people or 1 million rides?
3: 1 million rides. So okay. if you're right. It could even be more than 1 million people.
1: Well, but it's probably more than 1 million people, mm-hmm. but some of the people may be taking a taxi twice a day.
3: That's true.
1: <laughs> well, it's, so it kind of even evens itself out. So a million is probably pretty good, pretty good. Number, um, now your union, which has about fifteen thousand drivers, is it focused on any one of those subsectors?
3: Well, we now have twenty-five thousand. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> um, and we, we're not, we have a unity platform. We represent drive. We're a labor organization. We're not a trade association. We were founded by yellow cab drivers okay. in the nineties, but then as Uber and Lyft came into the industry, many of those members went to work for the companies and we retained a, you know, a solidarity model, you know, an old, an, you know, Really, what they call right—an old school industrial union where you organize wall to wall, because that's where the real power is, and that's solidarity.
1: So that's intriguing. So, <clears throat> so you you members of your union mm-hmm. come from all of those areas?
3: Yes, and more. Most of our members right now actually drive for Uber and Lyft, and oh. you know our our. You know, I think our philosophy is. We all have the same destination. Right. We're trying to get to a, a, a dignified well, um, point. Um,
1: um, Bettery, pardon me for a little bit of humor, and I don't mean to, but you're on the Catholic channel. We kind of think our, our, all of our destination should be heaven. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if the yellow, Can- I don't know if, that, if that's a double fair zone <laughs> or, or whatever, but... <laughs>
3: definitely uh, outside city lines right <laughs> but, uh, but, anyway. but our, our philosophy is you know we we are you know that goal is this we're trying to get to that same end point but we're all starting you know we're all starting at a different line right our starting point is different so uber and lyft for example as companies monopolize the industry, have about 75% of the total fares. Yellow cabs, you know, once used to monopolize the number of trips, you know, used to do the majority, they've lost Ridership significantly once Uber and Lyft were allowed in without regulation. So, we, you know, we critique the business model. It doesn't matter to us who's behind that model. It could be Uber or Lyft, could be a bank, it could be a taxi garage. Our fundamental issues with the business model, it just so happens at the moment that the companies that dominate the business model that is really out to destroy driving as a full time job and you know, continues to try to lower the standards and incomes are Uber and Lyft. And so that's the primary business model that we've really been organizing against.
1: Okay, so let's now go. Uh, we could talk and you're going to come back. I'm not going to let you get off with just one segment, but <laughs> talk to us a little bit about congestion pricing. And let me set this up mm-hmm. for our listeners throughout the, throughout the country. So, in, in New York, and those of you who don't know New York, we have kind of a central area in Manhattan where they usually kind of make a lot of movies about and stuff like that. But our city is 8.8 million people. Most of those people, like probably 75, 80% of them, do not live on Manhattan Island. And then when you get Manhattan Island, you take probably about, oh, a third of Manhattan Island where there's a lot of business and a lot of stuff. And it's actually where I live because my church is right near Grand Central Station. But there's a lot of congestion. A lot of people came in and we're speaking primarily pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, but it's coming back. And so congestion pricing is an attempt to try to say, well, how do we deal with all of that congestion? And I think, so I set that up. Now you can, uh, speak, speak to our listeners about what's going on right now.
3: Um, so right now, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, MTA, um, has put out an environmental impact study. And that study is then going to go to the federal government for approval. And if they approve, then a board is going to decide on the fee for the congestion pricing, as well as um, who is entitled to an exemption, right. and there are a number of different parties that are fighting for an exemption. Like folks coming in from our neighboring state of New Jersey, who are saying, "Well, we're going to be double tolled because we already have to pay a toll to enter the state." Um, you know, from from New Jersey right. and New York, um, and we've been fighting as drivers. We've been fighting for an exemption, right. so. Yellow cabs, you know, we have 13,500 yellow cabs in the city of New York, second biggest market in, in, in the, you know, in North America. Um, but with Uber and Lyft and the, you know, the industry's really taken a massive hit, you know, the yellow cab industry in New York City, to operate, you have to have what's called the medallion, right? It's a number everybody sees on top of the car. It's a legal permit that was once worth a million dollars. So you have thousands of people that are straddled in a lifelong debt. They also already paid two different surcharges, like three, which totaled $3 per trip to the MTA. And they've been doing the yellow cap sector has been doing that since 2009. Uber and Lyft have uh, at the moment 75,000 cars, which about 45,000 active on any given day compared to about 7,000 active on the yellow cab side. And um, they, Uber and Lyft trips, there's one, uh, one fee that, that is paid to the MTA. So now with the addition of this fee, it will literally just wipe out the yellow cab sector because there, you know, there's no way for yellow caps to spread it out. Like it's going to be on every single trip because 95% of yellow cap fares are in the zone that they're looking to tax. Meanwhile, you know, Uber and Lyft have more leeway to spread it out. However, the proposal that's on the table would really tax the driver not the companies, and the MTA itself has said that the imposition of this tax on the yellow and for hire vehicle industry will lead to massive job losses because ridership, the goal of the surcharge is to reduce ridership with the the aim, I would even say delusion, that people will then be taking subways and buses instead, which will put more money back to the MTA.
1: Ah, so yeah, I mean, I I get it. I understand all of that. So let, let's take a new, like a, a yellow cab driver. Mm-hmm. Do they they have to pay a fee? E- is it even if they stay in the zone?
3: So right, so right now, right, they're collecting three dollars um, on fifty cents on every trip. $2 plus an additional $2.50 on trips that are already in the zone, right. 96th Street and below. This congestion pricing zone would be 60th Street and below. Um, so it would, it's a one-time fee, mm-hmm. but it, you know, but it, when you're entering the zone, but it could, but as you're doing pickups, it could be on every trip. Okay. Depending on the scenario that the MTA picks out, it could be nine dollars on every trip. It could be twelve dollars. It could be twenty three dollars on every trip.
1: Right.
3: And, and and you know you know Monsignor, mm-hmm. the most the the most the craziest thing here is the MTA has come out and said we know this is going to lead to massive job losses in the economic analysis of this study. And God, how tired are we of people? Who, who, for whom it's a luxury to separate environmental justice from economic justice, right. right? So they've done this environmental impact study with like a couple of pages dedicated to the economic impact. And they highlight drivers in there. They also say drivers will be affected. They will suffer job losses, but the companies will be okay, because the com- companies will be able to withstand it, they'll just have less drivers, but they can adjust to the, you know, the number number of drivers and the number of trips. But there will not be enough trips for all the drivers, so there that would lead to job losses on the yellow cab side. Imagine paying an extra twelve hundred dollars a month on your medallion lease. Now, that's on top of the vehicle cost, insurance you know, gasoline, all of that, there's no way the yellow cab industry could survive this at all.
1: I mean, it's, I mean, uh, we're speaking with um, Beteri Desai uh, about congestion pricing. I mean, Desai, I kind of say the technical word. It all seems crazy to me. I mean, (laughs) that, that, you know, if already, I mean, maybe everybody's got to be taxed somewhat, but if they're already taxed for coming below 96th Street, yes. that, I mean, shouldn't that maybe count as their congestion price tag or, you know, and, you know, it, are you getting any traction?
3: I think we are. I mean, I know, you know, we did a fantastic rally um, in two days notice, we had um, over 200 drivers outside the governor's office, we had really sympathetic coverage in the media. Um, And, you know, and um, by the way, if the driver is empty, they're going to have to pay out of pocket. So if you're entering the zone to go to work, you're paying out of pocket. And that could that would also include Uber and Lyft drivers, even though these are, you know, billion dollar companies. So um, we held a unity rally last night. We had a unity meeting with 621 drivers on it. And so we're we're ready to go. You know, we've also been fighting for a raise for all drivers because, you know, part of what's happened is, you know, we live. We live in a political economic system where there is so much stacked against you to make you poor and then to keep you poor. And then once you are poor, you're considered expendable. And so it just feels like there is an attack on these jobs, which are seen as low wage. But there are thousands of families that depend on this job as their bread and butter, you know, um, and you know, their lives would be turned upside down. 96% of yellow cab drivers are immigrant. 90% of Uber and Lyft drivers are immigrant. These are folks who already are on the outskirts of the economy You and would be just displaced. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the displacement of immigrants in terms of, you know, deportations or you know, borders right. being closed. But there's also the displacement of people in general from the economy, right? right? And, and that's what we fundamentally have to fight. And we, we do think we're gaining traction and we are not going to quiet or go away easily.
1: No, <laughs> well, uh, Bette Desai, who is the executive director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, thank you so much for being on the show. And I want you to come back. Uh, this is a very, very kind of important topic And let's see how it develops. I mean, there's a lot of of equities that need to be weighed in this. And um, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for kind of trying to protect immigrant jobs. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Great. Just love, just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
3: Now,
0: let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan.
1: Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. I think we had two interesting conversations today. Tom, thank you for uh, the guests that we had, you know, the situation. Two of those situations are pretty significant. I mean, the issue of what happens after war with the people who are displaced, and we talked about Afghans, who uh, people from Afghanistan who are in the United in the United States. They plight, their situation, and very close to home, some immigrants who have come to the United States from many different countries who are now making their living here in the United States. We talked about New York today, but it's other cities also by driving. And some of the issues of economic justice seem to be colliding with issues of environmental justice. And so how do we weigh all of those those realities? So anyway, but thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. Uh, I hope you have a good Labor Day weekend. And let's raise up the dignity of work, the importance of workers as fundamental to the dignity of the human person. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. We'll make our world more just and more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic
0: Channel. Sirius XM 129.